Let's consider tonight that provision to him that overcomes. I was presented to the church of Philadelphia. In Revelation chapter 3, we'll open up by reading verse 12 in that third chapter. Consider well, a number of other provisions that the Lord promises to that one who will be fully victorious. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12 says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. With that, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to bless specifically this lesson tonight. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, this evening, trusting, Lord, as our brother just mentioned ago, a moment ago, Lord, that we're gathered here together in fellowship as an assembly, but each of us are individuals as well. So I pray, Father, that our hearts would be right before you and that we'd have desires, Lord, individually to seek you and pursue you, Father, strengthening our walk in faith. Well, with your spirit, Father, that we might together, Lord, satisfy those needs, satisfy those places that you have assigned each one of us in this assembly, strengthening this assembly. And Lord, it's strengthening the body of Christ at large. Father, we trust you, Lord, to do that work in us, do that work in you. The body of Jesus in this church, Father, I pray that you would help us to take our place and lay hold of what you want us to lay hold of. Bless us tonight as we consider your word. Help us to lay hold of even that much more just this evening. We praise you and thank you, Lord, and give you the glory. And we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, looking at Philadelphia here, and if you if you have any familiarity with the church at Philadelphia. I've read this for yourself in the years and days leading up to this or during this study. Then you recognize that Philadelphia is like that church in Smyrna. Well, there's nothing of criticism that's presented here in, in Jesus' words and statements and his remarks to this church. And where there's no complaint or where there's no criticism, far be it for me to criticize uh, these ones. And as you look and see what the Lord says to them, you realize that there's a presentation here of those ones, a church that's characterized, you might say, by the very individual that we've been considering these, well, nine weeks now, him that overcomes. Now, there were ones, we just read about Sardis here recently, about those ones who, well, have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white. And there, there were different individuals in each of these seven churches that well, it had more spiritual success, more, more a deeper faith, a deeper understanding, weren't necessarily as individuals characterized by that assembly that they were a part of, per se. But we can, look at, we can look at Philadelphia and we can see that this overall church, this overall assembly, now there might have been outliers here and there within it, but overall it was characterized by him that overcomes. We can see that there, there's great strength there physically, well, Little, little strength, we'll read here in just a moment, but there's great success, I'll say it that way. Uh, as we look at this church here, and we'll kind of look and see what Jesus says about these different ones. As I've been studying this out, I've been thinking, well, what a, what a gracious God that we have. What a gracious and timeless God that we serve. Jesus uh, speaking to these ones, and he speaks to them in a manner that, well, that appeals to the psyche, I would say, and the mind of the present of the present believer. 
Now, if you look into psychology and sociology and all of those things, you can recognize that over the course of the generations, the years that have passed, just let's just look at the last century, say. You can see that with each generation, there's a change in personality, and there's a, there are little variations in what what their motivations and ambitions are driven by. And I'm not going to get into all the sociology and put a whole lot of stock into that, but I'm just grateful by just a little thing that the Lord showed that, well, let me say it this way. If you look at the modern generation, say the last couple of generations, uh, what they find is that rather they're moved by being, well, they're moved by being acknowledged for their work Different motivations you see throughout each generation. Some were, were motivated back in the olden days, I guess you might say, by satisfaction with a job well done and over the time of longevity and that sort of thing. Modern generation is moved by being acknowledged, moved by being encouraged, moved by being positively reinforced rather than meeting with punishment. If something, if something isn't met, if they're lacking in their production, they don't respond well to negative reinforcement. They respond better, uh, the authorities tell us. They respond better to positive reinforcement. Being told that you're doing a good job, you're doing all right. As I read this here, you can see that this would satisfy. This would satisfy. How Jesus speaks to the church of Philadelphia, I see, well, I see acknowledgement that would satisfy even the most self-centered or self-focused or, or youngest generation, immaturest, most immature of the, of the newest generation today. And we can see acknowledgement in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8, and hopefully I'll make sense to you as I go here, where he says, I know your works. I acknowledge you for what you've done. I acknowledge you for what you're doing. I acknowledge you for your purpose and your walk in life. I acknowledge you for your faith. He says, I, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. Have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Just like he told all of the churches. All of these, well, the five before uh, Philadelphia, and when he speaks to Laodicea, as we'll see next week. I know your works. He recognizes, I acknowledge you. And he goes on to give them some positive reinforcement. Uh, speaking directly to whomever, of whatever age, whatever motivation it is. This is as positive a reinforcement as you can, as you can enjoy here in verse 9. Where he says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. If you continue, as you continue in faith, as you continue in laying hold, because you have kept my command to persevere, here's the reinforcement I will give you. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. That's positive reinforcement there. That's saying, if you do this, I will reward you in the manner that no one else can match. Uh, I'll give to you in, in to a level that... Well, it's incomprehensible. I will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. You certainly won't see that tribulation period. And there will be riches laid up for you, we understand, as we consider the rest of the word. Uh, the modern generation wants to be encouraged, wants to be helped along the way. Revelation 3 and verse 11, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. <laughs> Hold fast what you have. I'm encouraging you, hold fast to this that no one may take your crown. You've laid hold of some things. Now hold fast and it will be so. It will be yours. That's as encouraging as it can get, I believe. Uh, he acknowledged what they had done in Philadelphia, acknowledged what they could do. 
um, encouraged them with positive reinforcement and told them, continue, and this will be yours. I appreciate that. Uh, and this, this church, you know, whether you're of the newest, youngest generation or days old generation, generations old generations, this is for us. This is for us to lay hold of and to find that acknowledgement, find that encouragement, find that positive reinforcement, and it be our motivations as well. Uh, these ones, him that overcomes, will lay hold of, well, will present themselves in this way. We'll lay hold of those things that Philadelphia was laying hold of, and we'll win him. We'll win Christ, certainly. Uh, this church here, before we look far or begin with the first provision there, uh, I'd like to look at this piece about the new Jerusalem there. Just kind of jumping right into it here. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12, so that we can make sense of the provisions that Jesus is talking about, let's talk about this new Jerusalem here. Uh, Upon him that overcomes will be written the name of this city here, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. So if we're going to understand what it means to be a pillar, uh, a pillar in the temple of my God, and what it means to be have the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, written on them, and so on and so forth, we need to understand what this new Jerusalem is. What is the new Jerusalem? Uh, for that, you need to turn to Revelation chapter 21. Let's turn over to the 21st chapter of Revelation. If you haven't read the 21st chapter, let me encourage you to read it. Read all of Revelation. As confusing as some pieces might be, write out your own timeline. There are a number of different places that have, well, that you can find timelines drawn out. Not everything is chronological in the book of Revelation. It bounces back and forth a little bit here and there. And I certainly wouldn't trust just any timeline that's out there. So as the Spirit leads, make your own timeline and compare one thing with another. But understand here in Revelation chapter 21, it is near the end of the entire Bible, certainly, but definitely at the end of the book here. And it is chronologically looking at something on the far end, the far end of that age to come. The far end of what we call, well, time right now, before eternity begins in earnest, I would say. Uh, this is after the Lord's return, after He has taken away those ones represented by the Philadelphia church. It's after... Well, each individual in the church has stood before the judgment seat of Christ. It takes place after that, Revelation 21 does. It takes place after that great tribulation that Philadelphia will be removed and not have a part in. It takes place after, well, after that age of the millennial kingdom that Jesus is present here. It's, it takes place after Satan's been put away for a thousand years. It takes place after Satan has come back up and has a last hurrah and goes to all four corners of the world to bring together allies that will stand against the Lord Jesus and His people. Of course, He'll be judged. He'll be defeated. He'll be cast out. It's going to take place after that, and it's going to take place after that great white throne judgment where all unbelievers stand before God and ask to be judged, essentially, by their works and not the book of life. After all of these things take place, and every position is appointed to each individual, those positions start to fall into place, at least complete that falling into place. And John records what he sees there uh, when those positions are concreting themselves. And we see it in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse, verse 1. We'll read the first two to begin with. And he says, after all of that, after Satan's put away, after all sin has been removed and there's no, no more of that, he says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. Also, 
There was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Step down the page to the ninth verse. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And what did he show when he took him? It says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Not Jerusalem as we know it today, not Jerusalem as they knew it back then, not Jerusalem in the days before that. This is the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. That goes on from there to, well, define in a number of, well, symbolic language, I would say. Talks about its measurements, talks about its composition and its makeup. It talks, it points different people and personages to different parts and different elements of that city. Talks about its architecture and a number of different things that we're not going to go into deeply tonight. So much of it's figurative. So much of it is hard to understand because John had to look and see what he saw and then put it in, well, whether the Lord showed him exactly what he saw and John penned it exactly as he saw it or he saw what he saw that is beyond description and he penned it in a manner that well, made sense to him and would make sense to us to the measure that we can comprehend it. So much of this is symbolic. So much of it is figurative. So those things that we can't fully understand, and a lot of people try to well, try to express that they understand all of it, and I <laughs> don't take their timeline, okay? Uh, because they don't. They don't understand all of it. There is... Well, there is a measure of, of things here that we can understand. So let's understand what we can see, starting with this. Starting with this. Now, I trust everyone here is clear. And if you're not clear, come see me or someone else uh, who can explain it to you. Uh, the church, the body of Christ, as we call it, is not the bride of Christ. And I trust, once again, that everyone here is clear on that. And that is something that we can understand. And I'm not going to preach that doctrine tonight, but I want to reinforce it. The body of Christ is not the bride of Christ. The church is not the bride that we read about in Scripture here. It's important to understand that because if the new Jerusalem that was shown here to John, if the new Jerusalem is a picture of the bride of Christ, is the Lamb's wife, as John says, saw it for himself and states very clearly here, then the new Jerusalem can't be the entirety of the church wrapped up together, right? It cannot be in itself the church. Two chapters before we read this here in, in chapter 21. Turn back to chapter 19. We can see this kind of presented here. Uh, presented here um, in a way that we can kind of make an inference here, right? When we see the great majority, I believe, of the church speaking in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. Revelation 19, verse 6 says, And I heard, as it were, this is still John seeing some things and writing it down. He says, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Now, Revelation 19, verse 6, the voice of a great multitude. You can read about the multitude that we read, or that we see 
standing before the throne. An innumerable multitude from every nation, every tribe, every tongue is represented there. And they, they wave those palm branches, salvation to our God. And as we've considered a number of times in the past, these ones will have limited themselves, determining in this life not to lay hold of everything that Jesus laid hold of them for. And I believe that that's, if not the entirety of this great multitude that we're reading here, well, at least the majority of them. And we see that separation that's there. These ones will say, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now, I believe, you know, we can see that people talk in third person. You know, you can watch after a a game or before a big fight. Mike Tyson used to talk in third person. Mike Tyson doesn't figure anybody, he'd say. Mike Tyson isn't scared of anyone. Mike Tyson does this. Mike Tyson does that. And he's talking about himself in third person. I don't believe that the great multitude here is speaking in third person of themselves when it says his wife has made herself ready. It says, let us be glad and rejoice. Now there is joy there on their part. I believe it with all my heart. I believe that When the Lord says He will wipe away every tear from those ones, I believe that He will do so, but there are tears that are present. And I believe when this multitude says, let us be glad, I believe that those ones who didn't lay hold make the determination because they now adore Jesus in a manner that they didn't adore Him when they were here. They didn't love His appearing. And when they recognize the bride has made herself ready, they say, we must be glad because our Christ is glad. We must be glad. And they've made that determination. I believe that there is a recognition of that readying. That was encouraged for everyone. All of God's saints when they walked on this earth. Now, we understand they're not going to be left out to dry. We understand that there will be joy. Again, the Lord will wipe away every tear we can read. And there will be joy and a partaking of the Lord Jesus in that new Jerusalem, even if they aren't the bride themselves. We can read that in Revelation 21. A lot of time spent in Revelation in this first part of our consideration tonight. Revelation 21 verse 24 further describes the new Jerusalem after it comes down from heaven. It says, And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. By the way, there shall be no night there, so the gates are open all the time. 24-7, right? And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But again, these ones, while they will walk in its light, the activities and the functions and the involvement is going to be different for different ones. It's going to reflect what was important to them. It was going to reflect what their life was when they were given opportunity to lay hold here. It's going to reflect in eternity uh, what the individual's life was here. And the provision that's offered here to him that overcomes in Revelation chapter 3 where we opened up, it's not going to be enjoyed by all believers. And so, we'll look at that first promise here. And for time's sake, understand, I'm see the, I see the clock. We're not going to complete all these provisions to, uh, in this Philadelphian message here. But we'll look at this first one, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12, where he says, I will make him, him that overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. There in that new Jerusalem. Now you understand what a pillar is. You have four of them right here. Lit up so prettily, by the way. I love Christmas time with these lights up here. Pillars holding up. You know, I, I'm assuming these are load-bearing and not, 
you know, these ones here aren't load-bearing, right, Nick? Aren't these foam? Yeah, and those aren't pillars anyway because they're horizontally here, and, and pillars are vertical, and I'm confident those are load-bearing. I hope they are. <laughs> Uh, and what they do is they bear up the weight of that roof and the trusses and, and all of that that we have up in that attic that you don't want to see anyway. You trust that it's doing what it's supposed to do. You trust the trust. Get it? <laughs> oh, goodness. These pillars here are vertical, load-bearing pieces that hold up the substructure. Not substructure, the superstructure. Here's my definition. I'm going to quit going off the cuff. A solid vertical support for a superstructure. A pillar holds things up. Now... That being said, you understand that when we talk about people as being pillars, that's also a similar kind of simile, right? What is it when we call someone a pillar? Someone, a person, a pillar. Well, we're saying that they're a person who is supportive, is integral. I have another definition for you. A person who is integral, upstanding, and or an essential member or part of something. So if someone's called a pillar, I don't know of any time that it's not a compliment, not something that someone is saying that person has some measure of steadfastness, some measure of strength, some measure of patience, some measure of power on their own, some measure of long-suffering, you might say, if you want to use biblical words. Uh, You know who pillars of faith are. We had them when I was growing up. We had them at Abundant Grace, the assembly that we attended there. We have pillars of faith that are here. Uh, I guess you could call them essential personnel. Remember when that used to be all the keywords back in 2020? Essential personnel, which was a nice way of saying get to work. (laughs) Get out there. Well, you know, we have essential personnel in this assembly. We have ones who are willing to bear the load, as it were. Pillars of an organization are willing to bear the load and to carry that organization, you might say. Him that overcomes will be a pillar in the temple of my God, an essential piece of the structure of the whole. And when I say essential, I don't mean that they must be there or the thing's going to come crashing down. It means that Jesus, the Lord God, is going to integrate them into an essential piece for that structure. And we see a number of applications there. If you want to understand what the temple of God will be in heaven, then kind of understand what the temple of God was here. What's it like to be a temple or a pillar in the temple of God in heaven? We'll look at the natural presentation of it. You know, for time's sake, I'm not going to turn back and look at all of the different pieces of the temple. David gathered together all the materials. He fully intended to build a house for God, and God said, No, I'm not going to allow you to do this. You're a man of blood. Uh, I'm going to build you a house. And he had plans for David. And he appointed it instead to Solomon. We know that Solomon built Solomon's temple. It's been uh, termed and dubbed uh, throughout history. A temple, the temple there. Uh, for the center of worship, the worship of Jehovah. There were other places in throughout Israel and throughout Palestine where you know, the different elements of worship and gathering and assembling and sacrifice and those things took place for those ones who lived outside of Jerusalem, uh, the metro area, you might say. But this was the center of it. It's a place where sacrifice was brought. And it was a place where worship was to take place. It was a place where the atonement was supposed to take place for the people of Israel. It was a place where the Lord communed throughout history. Uh, communed with, with, well, with the high priest as he went well, behind the Holy of Holies and stood before the ark and so on. And inside of that building there were structural pillars to hold it up. Just as we have. There were two pillars out in the front, Jacob and Boaz. There's 
some debate on what the names mean exactly, so I'm not going to get in that so as to confuse or make conjecture. I'm not going to do that. But understand that there were pillars that were in place that bore up that place. There were pillars that were there that were symbolic. And, well, over the course of time, there were pillars of faith in the personages that came through, that came through that temple. I'll give you two, since it's Christmas time. Since it's... uh, well, already been mentioned during the Christmas program, and perhaps we'll look at a couple of these on Sunday. But in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25, I think Simeon and Anna are good examples of pillars of faith that were, in a figuratively literal type sense, actually pillars in the temple, you might say. Uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout. And those words mean righteous and well-receiving, or receiving well. And if you're going to be a pillar of faith, then you need to receive well what the Lord has for you. You need to receive well the word that He has. You need to receive well the provision that He has for you, the calling that He has for you. You need to know how to receive. Before you can be any kind of minister, before you can do any kind of benefit, you need to receive from the Lord so that you can turn that back. I digress here. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's another thing. If you want to be successful and be him that overcomes, I suggest you seek to be just and devout and the Holy Spirit be upon you. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so this one who was plainly a man of faith, plainly a man who believed in the Lord, plainly a man who was looking for that consolation of Israel, we know him by name as Jesus, He came by the Spirit into the temple, and that pillar came into the temple itself. Again, figurative meaning literal. He embodied that concept of being a pillar of faith. That lady, Anna, was the same. If you step down and look in verse 37 of Luke chapter 2, it says this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple. Again, uh, rather figuratively literal. She was a pillar there in the temple. She was there faithful. She was there constant, consistent. Uh, She did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And I don't have it written in my notes, but what did it say that she did shortly thereafter after Jesus came? Coming in that instant, it says in verse 38, she gave thanks to the Lord. And then what did she do? She spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. That's a pillar of faith, saints. That's a pillar in the temple, literally. Uh, She was, well, quite the example. Holding up the body of Christ, we might say. Paul speaks of these ones, these pillars of faith. These ones who are laying hold of that and will be appointed to that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. He speaks of these ones who are pillars, members of the superstructure of the body of Christ, again, you might say. Not laying the foundation, uh, but standing fast on it. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. The foundation that... He established in Jesus, Jesus being the rock, Paul being the interpretation or the interpreter, the messenger by which everything that was laid forth in the Old Testament about Jesus brought to him, opened up the pot, lid was taken off, and Paul was given to recognize it and present that new understanding. And that's the foundation that was laid. But different ones will build upon that foundation. Different ones will be pillars 
in the body of Christ, pillars in the church of God, the house of God, you might say. Uh, And these ones who will build upon that foundation, well, they'll be blessed. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, if it's a good pillar, if their life is an example of being, well, like Simeon and Anna, faithful, faithful ones who have borne up, who have lifted one another up, who have provoked and stirred one another up to love and good works, well, then those ones will receive a reward. And part of that reward we understand in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12 is to be appointed as a pillar in the temple, the heavenly temple of God. Isn't that what we say? That what we do in this life will be reflected in eternity? What we do and how we live in this life will be reflected in eternity? Him that overcomes is going to be integral, an integral part of that temple that is there in the holy city uh, in eternity, that new Jerusalem. Uh, It goes on there in verse uh, 12 of Revelation chapter 3. That promise continues. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. What does go out mean? Well, it can mean a number of different things, right? To go out can be, well, just as simple as saying not staying in, right? Uh, You who live with people, have people in your house, Maybe you have your different modes of transportation. Do you ever ask that person who lives with you or persons who live with you, you guys going out today? Yeah, we're going to go do this or that. Hey, well, while you're out, would you mind doing this for me? Would you pick this up at the store? Would you run this errand for me? If you're, if you're going out, if you're not staying in, if you're going to go out, would you mind going out so that I don't have to go out? You understand what it means. In this life, as a child of God, we're called upon to go out for the Lord. To go out, not to stay in. In John chapter 10, when Jesus talks about being the great shepherd, he talks about himself also being the door, right? The door into the sheepfold and out of the sheepfold. Uh, Well, how does he present it there? It says in John 10 and verse 7, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me... He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So, what does that mean? It means that that one who enters in and accepts the Lord is saved and then goes in and out. Doesn't just stay huddled down, so to speak. Doesn't just camp out there inside of that sheepfold, but finds pasture out there. Doesn't mean to go out there and be lost. It doesn't mean to go out there and sow your wild oats. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means to find pasture in the company and in the direction of the shepherd who's there. Uh, We talk, I'm not going to turn there, but we say often to live as Christ and to die as gain. A crown awaits those ones who look for and love his appearing. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Him that overcomes will take joy in those things. Takes joy in, in recognizing that in this time when we do not see him consciously, when we are out and doing and occupying ourselves as the Lord has for us, not in His presence consciously, not understanding that we aren't satisfied with being outside of His conscious presence. We're out and we're doing what He has for us to do. We're occupying ourselves. We're taking up our crosses. We're doing all those things, fighting the good fight of faith that He calls us to. But we're we're ready 
Those ones that want to see Jesus are ready to put that aside as soon as the Lord is ready to call them up. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 talks about what we occupy ourselves in, what it is to go out for the Lord. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. To stay in? No. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil as you walk through this earth. As you fight that good fight. As you're enlisted to the Lord and in his army. We put on the armor of God, the breastplate, the helmet. Carry the shield. Loins girt about with truth. We have our feet shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Not to stand inside of the sheepfold, but to go out. And find pasture out where the Lord has for us to go. Now, in this life, we are called to come in and go out. David was endeared and his people loved him because he came in and went out before them. He, they saw what he did. He went to war for them. He battled for them. He came in and he ruled them and he did things transparently before them. Uh, Bathsheba notwithstanding. He went back in and, and, in and, in and out. He, everything that he did, he went out for his people while he still occupied a place before them. And so it is for us. We go out for the Lord while we're staying in with him. To abide with the Lord and to abide in the Lord as he calls us to. Let's to be willing to go out for the Lord in this life. To go out. And that's how you abide in the Lord. By trusting him to guide you, protect you, to enable you as you go out of Well, out of just mere salvation. Go out and find those sufferings that He has for us. Go out and find those things that He's leading us to. That's how you abide in the Lord. Now, that being said, how does that reflect to Him that overcomes? He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, it says. These ones, when they get to heaven, when they become a pillar in the temple of God, There will be no need to go out anymore. And they will abide in Jesus, in His presence. There won't be a need for battle. There won't be a need to go out and find pasture outside in a way. There won't be a lack of consciousness between ourselves and the Lord Jesus. They will abide in Him eternally. They will be present there eternally. They will be inside of the new Jerusalem. That will be part of their structure there. There won't be any more occupying ourselves while we wait for Him to appear. Him that overcomes will be a pillar in the temple of God, a fixture there. And, for time's sake, we'll just cover it quickly. What is the temple of God? What is the temple of God in the New Jerusalem? The temple of God is no building as we saw in Jerusalem. The temple of God is no building that was destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and trying to be rebuilt and so on and so forth. The temple of God that will be in eternity, that the him that overcomes will be a pillar of, is seen there in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. When he was looking at the new Jerusalem, looking at the Lamb's wife, looking at the bride there, what did he say? He says, I saw no temple in it. <laughs> so what is it to be a pillar in the temple of God? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun nor of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The pillars are a part of the makeup of the Lord God Himself. I don't want to get too hokey. I don't want to get too, you know, uh, too corny about things or look too much in it. But I kind of see the pillars of the temple as the ribs of the body of Christ. 
And that rib portion is certainly the bride. That's what we call it quite frequently. And so you see that evidence there. You see that picture that's there. The pillars are part of the makeup of the Lord God Himself, the Lord Jesus Himself. So close you can't be any closer than to be one of the inner structures of the temple of God that is the Lord Jesus, the center of worship, the, well, what did we say? Place where sacrifice was brought, that's what the temple was. A place where atonement was sought and provided, a place where the Lord communed with his people, and so on and so forth. That is what Jesus is. Jesus satisfied every one of those needs that the temple provided in the day. And that's what him that overcomes will be a pillar in. The temple that is the Lord Jesus, inside of that city that is the New Jerusalem. Lots of pictures there. But as you look and dig into those things, you recognize that the Lord shows sweet, sweet pictures there. Sweet confirmation of who we can be if we are him that overcomes. Um, that's where we're going to stop tonight. And we'll pick up and we'll finish this passage here in Revelation 3 next week.